0: And of college basketball fans, if you are in the middle of that, you are excited for this time. Literally every day for days on end, you can watch basketball almost nonstop all day long. I even heard a couple of commercials on the radio advertising guys and people, to ha- mostly guys, to have surgeries during March Madness so they can have an excuse to watch basketball. So I assumed that Ted was a March Madness fan when I heard that he was a, s- a surgery coming up. And so, yeah, that's kind of how that goes. But we're going to be just thinking about kind of all of the happenings around Jesus before Easter. There was so much going on. You could say it was, if you were a follower of Jesus, or you were around the crowds, or you were kind of in the middle of everything that was going on, it was kind of like, whether it was in March or not, it was like this crazy time where so much was going on. And if you know your Bibles, you know some of the stories about what Jesus was doing around this time. So we're going to take the next few weeks to really think about a little bit of application between what a lot of our culture is focused on with March Madness and kind of the craziness that was around Jesus and some of the things that the people were drawn into, some of the mistakes that were made, and some of the ways that we also can grow in our faith with the Lord in this study. So looking forward to this time together talking about March Madness and about following Jesus. If you have a Bible with you or a smartphone or however you read the scriptures, I hope that you uh, get those out. Turn to John chapter 12 is where we're going to be reading from this morning. Uh, It is not in the message, Linda, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you, if you need it, you have a way of getting it and we'll get everything across. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. Let's stand together as we read God's word together. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse 21. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet Him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, His disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to spread the word, many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out to see him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Father, we pray this morning that in the craziness of our life and all the things that we get wrapped up in, the good things, the distracting things, the troublesome things, uh, the, the ways that you lead us, we pray, Lord, that we would always have that hunger and that desire to see Jesus with our own eyes and with our own heart. And we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I thought about having you stand for the whole sermon, but you can go ahead and sit down. When we went through the pastor's questionnaire, the survey that you took on how we're doing, no one asked to stand during the sermon, so we'll just let that one go. But it is getting ready to be um, time for uh, the Final Four in basketball, and if you don't know much about it, it's a tournament selecting the best teams in college basketball, and they start out with 64. And if you watch any of this, you're always watching for the Cinderella story, right? The team that comes out of nowhere, the team that no one expects to win. But they start with 64 and they have a tournament. They do a big bracket and people bet on it and all kinds of stuff. And then, uh, so everyone plays and it gets down to 32 teams. See, I know how to do math. And then from 32, you get down to the sweet 16, right? And then the Elite Eight and then the Final Four and then the National Championship game, which the Ducks came that close to making last year, just that close with a couple of better rebounds we would have been there. Has anyone ever been to a Final Four or any kind of college game like that uh i've heard that if and i'm sure have you been to blazer game sharing in person i figured that you would answer yes to that is it pretty boring when they announce the teams it's not you go to the you turn on your tv and watch one of these final four games or some of these march madness teams I mean, they they get the crowd pumped up. That bumpy music starts happening, and you know and the flashing lights start coming, and 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 you know your team's about ready to come out on the floor. And so they get that music loud, and they get the crowd, you know, on the big screen says, "Make a lot of noise!" in great big letters. And so everyone starts st- shouting and stomping their feet, and everyone gets excited because your team's about ready to come out, and you just believe in all of your heart that your team is going to win and this crowd gets stirred up to into a frenzy, and people scream and yell, and if you see on the TV, they paint their faces, and they do straight things to their hair, and I mean, there are some, some really crazy fans out there. I don't know that Sharon paints her hair and paints her face for the Blazers, but but there's this just building anticipation of this amazing, and then the team and the crowd grows wild, and the confetti comes down, and everyone shouts and screams, and there is it is a production to get to this point. The fight song plays, the cheerleaders come out, and everyone goes wild. And in John chapter 12, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but this, in this culture, religiously speaking, for, for this group of Jewish people, for these followers, this really what has been happening. This is really kind of the crescendo coming to its fruition when Jesus comes out, because Everything that's been happening in the last days and weeks has been leading to this moment. Jesus knew it. The crowd realized it when He came, but in so many ways they missed it. But for three years, Jesus has been building His ministry for this day. For three years, miracle after miracle after miracle, He has healed the sick, helped the lame to walk, the blind to see, cured the lepers. Crowd after crowd has come to hear His teaching and His wisdom. And less than a week before this, he went to the home of Mary and Martha and raised Lazarus from the dead. Look back in your scriptures to see who a lot of the crowd was. The people that were there or the people that had heard about this man being raised from the dead and just the the anticipation and the excitement And just the passion around this moment has been growing and growing and growing. And so by the time that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, by the time he gets to his passage in John chapter 12, the crowd is primed, man. They are pumped. They are just ready to explode. And so in no way will Jesus' entry in Jerusalem be missed or be a casual event. Because Jesus had even come to do some things. He'd come to declare he was king of Israel. The Bible says he was the anointed one, that he would be the promised Messiah, that he was the one who'd been predicted for centuries by the prophets of God. Even a year before this, remember, Jesus had been out teaching and the people were hungry. So they had the little boy bring his little sack lunch, basically, to Jesus. And Jesus not only fed the crowd, but there was so much left over that they probably had to hire people to haul it away. Do you remember what the crowd did at that time? They wanted to make him a king after that moment. So for all of this time, the people realized that Jesus was special. They realized that he was different. And more than anything, they wanted a physical deliverer from the Roman oppression. But it had only gotten worse in the time since that feeding of those thousands. And after the raising of Lazarus, they just couldn't help themselves anymore. They wanted him to be king. They wanted him to be an earthly king. Not only to sit on the throne of their hearts, but to sit on the throne of David to lead them into battle against the hated Romans. Jesus, you see, was everything you could hope for in a leader. He was charismatic. He was decisive. He was powerful. He could beat thousands of soldiers with just a little MRE basket. What army on earth could face such a king and stand a chance? And all these people could think of was an earthly king. But what happened to the crowd when they realized that Jesus wasn't going to be who they wanted him to be? What happened to the crowd when Jesus started to say things that they didn't expect? What happened when Jesus claimed to be God's only son? They weren't shouting Hosanna anymore, they started to shout for his blood. Jesus had no intention of setting up an earthly kingdom. In fact, he declared in Luke chapter 17 that the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your heart. And in Romans 14, 17, Paul said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God isn't a man, it's the church. The kingdom of God is you and I gather together. That's what Jesus came to establish and to coronate and to bring about as a reign over all the earth. And so we are, this morning, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in us. And right now, Jesus is our spiritual king. There's a lot of people that are gonna want their team to win this week and this month, and they're gonna want them to reign over everyone else. And I, um, and you and I have watched, um, when your team loses, oftentimes in our world today, now we riot and we loot and we destroy things because we want our Team to reign over everyone else. We get discouraged and we get defeated when life doesn't go the way we want, when our plans and dreams don't go the way we want them to go. And there's a few things about what Israel struggled with when they lost sight of their ability to have an earthly king that we need to remember as we live our lives that God isn't always going to fix all of our problems. God isn't going to give us a magic wand to make everything go away in life, but that He leads us as we follow Him to endure these trials and live this life together. So one of the things that Israel discovered in this time, you'll see it on the screen, is that God's kingdom has no boundaries. We we study a culture in the New Testament that was very boundary-oriented. This country belonged here, and this country was enslaved to the Romans, and so much of it was drawn by earthly boundaries. If you know your history, there's a time and place where, where we tried to set up Christendom as a nation, and it lasted for a while. We tried to build a fence around the church, build a fence around the nations of the world to keep Christianity in and keep the forces of darkness out. But this morning, the church does not need a fence around it. There's no walls that can protect us. The church doesn't need protection because the church is to be the force on the move. Jesus said to Peter after he asked his disciples, who am I? Who am I? Peter says, You're the Son of God. And he says, Upon that rock of foundation, my church will be made. And so then later the Bible says, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There's no boundaries to where God can lead us. There's no boundaries where God can take us. There's no force in your life or your mind that is too big or too large for God. And so many times we think of the gates of hell as this immovable force. If you watch um, any of the Lord of the Rings trilogies, what is it that breaks the, the enemy through or the attacking nation through? They, they break through the gates, don't they? That fortress is impenetrable as long as the gates and the walls stand. And so they find a way to break through the gates in order to have victory. And Jesus says the gates of hell will never prevail against us. There is nothing going on in your life or mind that is too far gone, too dark, too difficult for God, but that anywhere Jesus needs to go, he can go. Anywhere you need Jesus to go in your heart, in your life, he's able to be there and to be there for you. The people were limited in their scope of experiencing Jesus because he couldn't be exactly what they wanted him to be. They wanted to be an earthly kingdom to fix all of their problems. On the outside, Jesus said, No, I've come to make my heart and my kingdom to live inside of you and who you are to be about. So there's no kingdom, there's no power on the face of the earth that can stand against the kingdom of God because Christ's kingdom is not limited by physical boundaries. The church has citizens in every nation of the world. And the church's power is only limited by our lack of imagination and by our lack of involvement and our lack of trust in God in who He is. One of the hardest things for me to hear as a pastor is, Pastor, I know, I believe in the Lord. And I know that He is real, but there's nothing He can do for me right now. My problem's too hard, the darkness is too dark, the struggle is too deep, and there's nothing that He can do. For me, right now, Jesus says, "Well, that's why I came, is to show the world that there's nothing—even death—cannot stop me. And for all of us here this morning, we're still alive. So there literally is nothing too hard for God that we face in our own life, in our own heart. And so there are no boundaries. We try to let the devil put boundaries upon Jesus. He can go here and he can do that, but in that place of the struggle and discouragement. Or fear or pain, God cannot come. And Jesus said, I've come to be there for you in that one place you think I can't go. There's another struggle that Israel faced in their experience with Jesus is that they thought Jesus was to come and be all about force. He was gonna be the military ruler of Israel. He was going to come and he was going to take the sword and his miraculous power and Rome would have no chance because the Son of God had come to destroy them. But we all know that Jesus came for a different reason. He came to bring peace. He came to bring hope and joy into the hearts of those who believed in him. It was interesting to study the history of Israel and this miraculous entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem was not without precedent. If you've ever uh, studied Jewish history, there was a man four generations before by the name of Judah Maccabee. And he was very zealous for spiritual things. He was also very zealous in destroying anyone who didn't believe in Jewish philosophy. He even was nicknamed the Hammer. That's a tough nickname for a spiritual leader, isn't it? The Hammer. That doesn't get across a lot of peace and grace in life. But he was upset that the Syrians had taken over Jerusalem, and he gathered an army of Jewish soldiers together to fight against the Syrians. And so in 163 BC, Judah Maccabee entered Jerusalem riding on a massive, massive stallion. And you know what they said to him? Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved palm branches down at him, and they thought that their earthly deliverer had come. They even shouted, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Many people believed that Judah Maccabee was their Messiah. They entered the city. They cleaned out the temple. They burned incense and offered sacrifices. And to this day, they have a festival celebrating this occasion called the Festival of Lights. But it wasn't long after those festivals began that Judah died. He was killed in battle and buried. Jesus came not as a powerful warrior, but as a peaceful prince. And we read in that section that he sought out a donkey, not a dashing stallion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I want to come into anywhere and and make a scene, uh, a donkey is probably not my animal of choice. Uh, You know, uh, have you ever ridden a horse? So we... um, I don't know where to go around here, but in Ohio, we had um, a Christian ministry, and they had a farm with dozens of horses, and you could schedule a horse ride anytime that you wanted, and and, uh, never had the time to do it, but I would love to go on horse ride, and and it would be great if I would go in there, and they'd have this great big black stallion for me to ride. I mean, that would just be awesome, you know, or or a really nice-looking brown horse, but I'm going to spend... 20 or 40 or 50 bucks to go on a horse ride and, and the last thing that I would want was to come around the stable in this little bitty mule. That I'm bigger than, and that normally you've got to climb up onto a horse but the thing just has to stand there and I throw my leg around it and, and probably have the boringest ride ever. Israel wanted a flashy, pizzazzy king that would, that would rock the world and that would tell everyone just by his presence, the Romans had something to fear. But Jesus had a different message, that his kingdom was not going to be about force, but about love. His kingdom wasn't going to be about taking over a nation, but taking over someone's heart and changing who they were from the inside out. And so Jesus came to share a very different message than the Jewish people were wanting to hear, and they weren't very happy about it when they heard what he was going to do. I kind of grew up around a, I guess, a quasi-militant Christianity that whenever you heard something you didn't like, you went out and you told someone that they were wrong. You told them that God wasn't pleased with you and that they better fix things. And I can't ever remember being able to lead someone to Christ by that kind of attitude. But it was what I grew up upon. If you weren't right, if, if someone didn't agree with you, you went out and you told them that Jesus is king and the Bible is right and they're wrong and they better get things fixed. And I don't see that kind of attitude on Jesus as he comes riding on the donkey that day. I think he tried to be telling them the message, you know, think back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, And he had been trying to share with those people that living in the kingdom of God is not about about a a nation or about politics. It's not about being right or about being wrong. It's about having a hunger and a heart for God. And so he he offers to those people his life. He offers to them a relationship that he is the Son of God who's come to be that promised Messiah, offering them everything that they needed and that, that they said they wanted. But because he didn't do it the way they thought he would do it. Most of them joined the crowd that was screaming out for him to be crucified. And I know many of us have a list of prayers, maybe on our fridge or tucked in our Bible or wherever we keep them. Maybe it's just in our own heart. And for so many of us, our prayer is, God, I want you to come and I want you to Destroy the enemy. I want you to fix all these problems and make everything right. And we've prayed those prayers before and God has answered them. You've shared those in testimony times and God asks us to knock, to seek and we will find an answer. But sometimes I think as a church, we think of God as this mighty earthly deliverer will come and make all of our problems and sadness and trials and difficulties go away so we can be happy. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free. I've come to come alongside of you and to give you peace during the trials that you face in life. And I know that in our congregation this morning and in our church at large, there are a lot of battles going on. And it is in our nature for God to, for us to ask God to be our mighty deliverer, that he would just come and make all these things go away and make everything right so that we would not have a care in the world. But the fact of the matter is that eventually something else is going to come and take its place. It's only in heaven that we quit crying. It's only in heaven that there's no more sickness. It's only in heaven that there's no more death. And until that moment comes, We live in this life of trials and temptations and struggles. And the fact of the matter is that in all of the craziness of Jesus' day, in all the trials that Israel faced in that moment, they wanted Jesus to come and take all their problems away. And they missed the fact that He had come to live inside of them. That He had come to step down, to, to, to make Himself nothing to leave heaven's glory so that he could live inside of you and I. That when we face these trials and these battles and these struggles in life, that we don't have to go through them alone. He came to live inside of us, to have a relationship with us. Not to use force to destroy and take away all of our problems. But that grace would pour down and be enough in the middle of whatever we face in life. And we are called to cry out to God to be our deliverer. But sometimes his deliverance is a day-by-day thing. Sometimes the way that Jesus delivers us is minute-by-minute. Sometimes it's second-by-second, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, be with me. Lord, do for me what I could never do on my own. And I'm so grateful when we don't even know what to say at all. It says that Jesus takes over, and he prays in a way that we never In Mark chapter 10, the disciples were asked, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, well, I, Lord, want to sit on your right-hand side. And the other one said, I want to be on your left-hand side. And it was all about what they could gain in this life. It was all about the power to overcome, the power to wield that influence over others. And Jesus said, I've come among you to serve. That's the third struggle that the Israelites missed, and you should see that on the screen as well, that God's kingdom was not about gaining glory, but about serving others. It was about serving others. Jesus said, I am to be among you in Luke chapter 22 as one who serves. Jesus didn't come to wield power, but to serve in a way that only God could. Jesus' mindset was not to get followers, but to build a kingdom. And he needed all hands on deck. That's you and I. God is calling all of us to be a part of this great adventure of building the kingdom in his life. If you know anything about basketball, who is the most, um, who's the coach who's won more national championship games than anyone else? Anyone know their John Wooten? Great coach, amazing man, coach of the UCLA Bruins. And I've never heard it said of him that he built great individual players. Everything I've read about John Wooten is that he built championship teams And you watch his teams that, you know, he didn't have a lot of national superstars, but the teams that he made, he chose the right players and he he gave them everything they had and they became national championship teams. Individual accomplishments weren't really much of an interest to him, but he found five people who complemented each other and who were going to work together to build something special. One of his mottos was, the most important player when we win... Is the rest of the team, and I love that quote. Israel wanted to be about themselves. Israel wanted to be the best. Israel wanted to have it all. Israel wanted all their problems to go away. And Jesus said, "I've come to set you free to love others. I've come to set you free to be a blessing to those around you." It was Wooten who encourages players to um, acknowledge the assist of their other of their teammates. You know, if you get a pass and score a basket, you give a thumbs up, you give a wink or a nod or a point to someone else on the other court, and One of the players who was always kind of picking on him or asking questions, like, said, Well, what if the other player isn't looking for acknowledgement? He's like, Believe me, they'll be watching. (laughs) We all need to be acknowledged. We all need to be praised in our life today because God is in the business of building his church. So Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly boundary, He didn't come to make Vancouver First Friends the church in Vancouver. He didn't come for us to only minister within the walls of our building. He's come to open our hearts and our minds to the fact that His kingdom is everywhere. Down the street, across the road, at the gas station if you've got to get gas when you leave here, or the restaurant that you go after church, or the home that you go back to. His kingdom is not limited by a place or by a title or about by anything. But that His kingdom resides in us and that kingdom is being built in the world around us, and our our calling as disciples is not to go and beat someone over the head until they accept Christ. There are religions in our world today that if you don't convert to their um, doctrine, then they 'll destroy you that doesn't sound very inviting to me, but I love the idea that Jesus wants us to come alongside those who are hurting and to love them and to minister with them and minister to them and to be a blessing. This is some of the things that Jesus says the church is to be doing. Romans chapter 12, be devoted to one another. Romans chapter 15, accept one another. Galatians chapter 5, serve one another. Ephesians chapter 4, bear with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. And lastly, Ephesians 4.32 ends, forgive one another just as in Christ God has forgiven you. The church isn't about me and the church isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And that's what he's called us to understand that so many times we get these separate ideas that God is to only be here for me and I have to get everything the way I want it to be. Or God, if you could just fix this other person, then everything would be right. Or if you just take away all of my problems, everything would be okay. And God says, I just want to come and dwell in the midst of you. I want my temple to be inside of you and to live as a a part of who you are. So that when the boundaries of the nations come crashing down, or life comes crashing down upon you, and things just sense and you can't figure it out anymore, that you have someone there to be with you. Don't put up all these boundaries of ideas and places and things that keep us from missing everything that he's called us to be. So I love these Gentiles in the end of our text this morning. All of this craziness and madness, all of the people totally missing everything that Jesus was trying to teach them, all the miracles and all the teaching and all the preaching and the praying and the crying that Jesus has done, for the most part, had gone over everyone's head. It even said in that passage, it was only after he was gone to heaven, the disciples even started to get some of what he was saying. But in the middle of all this madness, whether it was in October or March, (laughs) these few group of Gentiles who came to the disciples and said, we would like to see Jesus. And I don't know what battles you're facing in your life, what struggles are going on, but what greater prayer could we ask of God than, Father, could we see Jesus in our midst? Whatever struggle I'm facing to connect with God, whatever limitations I have to my understanding about who He is or how He works when life is so hard and so trying, I would still long to see Him, to feel Him and to know that He's real and close to me. The sad thing is that for the vast majority of the crowd, they went from worshiping and praising him to destroying him. There was a few women who clung to Jesus, but for the rest, they ran. And the last thing they wanted to do was to see Jesus. This must be human nature for us. When things go wrong, we so often push away the one who wants to be the closest to us. And so it's my prayer as we we think of this time leading up to Easter and this amazing celebration of of the resurrection of Jesus, that in these days and in these weeks, in the middle of all that we face in life, that we could see him. Maybe for you, there's something in your heart this week that it would just be good to repeat that prayer. Lord Jesus, can I see you? Can I feel you? Can I touch you? Can you be real to me in the middle of all this ugliness? Can you be real to me in the middle of this sickness? Can you be real to me in the middle of saying goodbye to someone that I love? Can you be real to me when I fear the worst? Can you be real to me when I don't know what's coming? Can you be real to me when I don't know anything else to say? But Jesus, I need you to be real to me. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we don't live in a